Many of the best moments in life cannot be captured in words. Sometimes something happens and you just have to say, wow. Any of you see the sunrise this morning? Wow. Or when you eat a holiday meal and you push back from the table knowing that you had two bites too many, wow. When you see your bride walking down the aisle, wow. When you hold your baby in your arms for the first time, wow. Sometimes you just have to say, wow. You know, Christmas, at least to me it seems, is getting longer and longer every single year. The Christmas music seems to start playing in July. I gotta start shopping in April just to get everything done. And we see gazillions of nativity scenes. And so it's easy just to walk right by them and ignore them. We become, well, we become calloused to the wonder of the baby that's in this cattle stall. It's easy. We fail to be mesmerized by the miraculous because sometimes at Christmas time, the miraculous can become mundane. We've seen the nativity scenes a million times, but when you see the manger this Christmas, I want you to say, wow. Because when you encounter the truth of the Son of God and what he's done for us, you can't help but say, wow. The story of the Bible is a story of a father and his sons. But unfortunately, the father's children have a long history of disobedience. In the beginning, God made Adam and Eve, and he gave them the guidelines for life and for health for them. But then the serpent came along and whispered a lie, and Adam and Eve chose to trust the enemy instead of their father. They disobeyed, and so did everyone after them. And so God chose this special people to become a nation, the nation of Israel. And out of all the people on the earth, God chose Israel to be his special children. In fact, God the Father calls Israel my son. In Exodus chapter 4, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. And yet, Israel was a disobedient son. At the beginning of Isaiah, God says, I've reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Israel had experienced the loving care and the tender goodwill of the Father, but they rebelled anyway. They chose to trust other nations instead of their Father. They chose to worship idols instead of the one true God. They chose to be like the people around them instead of living the way that God called them to live. So just like Adam and Eve, and just like us, they chose to trust the enemy instead of their father. Israel was yet another disobedient son. And so into this disobedience, God sends a prophet named Isaiah. Now a prophet was just a go-between between men and God. He spoke the words of God to men, and he prayed on behalf of men to God. And Isaiah was a, a man uh, like us. He had a wife, he had children. And so to bring his disobedient children back to him, God sends Isaiah, a father, and his sons. Let's zoom in for a little bit. Open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter seven. And I wanna look at one particular instance in the life of Isaiah that will illuminate a little more for us about God the Father and his children. You may remember the situation that we were in last week in the book of Isaiah. God's people have split into two kingdoms. They were once united, but now there's Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And Isaiah is living and prophesying in Judah. 
Well, Israel, the northern kingdom, decides they want to invade Judah, the southern kingdom. And the king of Judah, this guy named Ahaz, is freaking out. And so he decides that he wants to call the big, bad, evil empire of Assyria to come down and help him fight against Israel. Now, God warns him not to do this. Trust me instead of Assyria. I got this. But Ahaz just wants to trust himself instead. The analogy we used last week was like this. It's like Plainfield and Avon used to be united as God's people, but then they split up, okay? So Avon to the north decides they want to invade Plainfield and conquer them. Well, the mayor of Plainfield is kind of scared about this, so he decides to call Chicago for help. But Isaiah comes to speak from God and says, no, don't trust Chicago, just trust me. I got this. God sends Isaiah to confront the king of Judah. And actually, Isaiah brings his son along. God tells him to bring his kid. It's bring your kid to work day for the prophet, which means you get to watch your dad take on the king. So that's pretty cool. Pretty cool job to shadow. And God says through Isaiah to King Ahaz, he says, don't make an alliance with Assyria. Just trust me. I'll protect you. I'm way bigger and stronger than those kings that you're worried about. You guys know all those signs that say keep calm and carry on? There's like a million of them around. You can't walk 10 feet without seeing a variation of one of them. You, can, you, you, know, you see, keep calm and coffee, or keep calm and do the dishes, or keep calm and have a cupcake. How about we keep calm and quit making signs that say keep calm? That's what I think. But anyway, that's basically God's message to King Ahaz. He says, hey, keep calm and trust me. You're my kids. I'm your dad. I got this. And Isaiah, Isaiah says to him, he says this, and I quote, If you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. God says, if you trust Assyria instead of trusting me, it's not going to end well for you. And that sounds crazy, right? God's saying, don't worry about that invading army that has come to pillage your homeland. If you trust me, they're not going to hurt you. But amazingly, that's what God is promising. Sounds crazy. And for you, it may seem crazy or ridiculous to trust God. You may not know how you're going to pay the bills this Christmas. You don't think you can possibly be kind to that relative after how they've treated you. You don't want to forgive that coworker. It'd be a lot easier to talk behind their back or maybe you're sick again and the doctors just don't know what to do. Maybe you're not sure how you're going to find a job or mend that relationship with your child or overcome your addiction or find the courage to confess that sin to your spouse. But let me tell you, you can trust God. And the Father's way is always better than the enemy's. In fact, God even says to King Ahaz, he says, I'll prove it to you if you want a sign. Look at Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 12. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, oh, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now the king's response right there, it sounds nice and religious, but it's fake piety. Ahaz looks at the father and says, nah. He'd already made up his mind to do things on his own. And again, the children of God would rather trust their enemy than their father. Hmm. But look what God says. Isaiah chapter seven, verses 14 through 17. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. 
the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father, the king of Assyria. So Ahaz says, no thanks, no sign needed, I've made up my mind. But God says, ah, nope, I'm going to give you a sign anyway, and here it is. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. And now all of a sudden, this story of kings and war and international politics gets all Christmassy. What is going on here? What is this sign? Well, a young woman, somebody that Ahaz knows, will have a son. And before that boy is very old, the enemy that King Ahaz is worried about will be wiped out. Sweet. Hooray. Great. But that peace would actually just be the calm before the storm. Because Ahaz chose not to trust God, God is going to send Assyria down to bring devastation on the land. Isaiah talks about how this land that was once lush and fruitful will now become barren because the children of God trusted their enemy instead of their father. In C.S. Lewis's classic story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Peter and Susan and Lucy emerge into this land that is frozen and lifeless. And eventually the children do run across a few creatures, but these creatures live in hiding. They're fearful and they're hopeless because the whole land has fallen under the spell of an evil tyrant, the white witch. There's no joy, there's no peace, there's no hope. In Narnia, C.S. Lewis says, it's always winter, but never Christmas. And yet the seventh chapter of the book opens with these whispered words. Aslan is on the move. And in the midst of the darkness, all of a sudden, there's a glimmer of hope. Aslan is on the move. And in Isaiah chapter 7 here, even in the midst of this dark prophecy to disobedient sons of God, a glimmer of hope remains. You see, God had been present all along. You remember the name of that promised child? Emmanuel. It means God with us. And yes, that prophecy of a child was initially fulfilled with a baby boy who was born in Isaiah's day, but it's also pointing forward to a greater and more complete fulfillment to come. In Isaiah chapter 8, if you flip one chapter over, Isaiah tells of the destruction that will come on the land because of the disobedience of the people. But even then, in chapter 8, verse 8, it says that the land still belongs to Emmanuel. God is still with them. Then in chapter 8, verse 10, God says again, they're not going to win ultimately. I'm still here, Emmanuel. And all along, even in the midst of what seemed like hopelessness, the promise remained of a child to be born. And it would take 700 years after this prophecy for that child to arrive. But in the midst of it all, the father has not left his children without hope. Even when they're lost, he's not deserted them. And then all of a sudden, in Isaiah chapter 9, we see him. Isaiah 9, read with me, verses 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. 
For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The past two weeks, we've been looking at these promises of Isaiah to uncover the greatest Christmas gift ever given. And we're looking today at Jesus, the true son, and we're coming to behold him. And we're just going to say, wow, all of God's children, you and me and everybody else have been disobedient. Everybody except one. This son of God, Jesus, he's the true son. I'm indebted to a preacher named Daniel Aiken for my outline today. I want to look at three things to say wow about in regard to Jesus, the true son. First, he was marvelous in how he came. Marvelous in how he came. After each and every one of us kept messing up life, God finally said, okay, I'll come down there and I'll do it myself. In fact, John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, is an explanation of Christmas. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Jesus is the true son who came to do what we could not. Emmanuel, God with us. Wow. Now, babies are great, don't get me wrong, but in the grand scheme of things, one baby does not seem all that important. I mean, millions of babies are born every year. And so we sing that old Christmas song and we wonder, we ask the question of the ages, what child is this? Who is this Jesus? And yeah, sure, on the one hand, Jesus was 100% human. He was like us. In a lot of ways, he was like every other baby. But he was also 100% God. God himself as a kid. Can you imagine the pressure of parenting that? Yeah. Imagine Joseph arm wrestling with God. Uh, Imagine Mary making dinner one night thinking, wow, the one who made me is about to eat my biscuits and gravy. Imagine them teaching Jesus how he created the world. Uh, Yes, Jesus, you made that tree. Yes, Jesus, you made us. Yes, son, you, you made your friend Isaac. Son, you made the whole world. Imagine the God to whom Mary and Joseph were praying was asleep under their own roof. Imagine Mary rocking little baby Jesus to sleep singing, you've got the whole world in your hands. Wow. He's marvelous in how he came. You guys know the old phrase, before you judge someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you judge them, you're a mile away and you have their shoes. (laughs) Well, we were disobedient. But before he judged us, Jesus came and walked a mile in our shoes. Emmanuel, God with us. He experienced everything that we experienced and yet was without sin. He did what we could not. He is marvelous in how he came. Wow. Secondly, he's majestic in who he is. At the same time, in the same moment, Jesus was simultaneously a small and frail son of Adam and a mighty and splendid son of God. 
We call this the hypostatic union. Say that with me, hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. Good job, you guys are officially nerds. You're gonna get your money's worth today, okay? Hypostatic union. All that means is that at the same time, God is totally man and totally God. That's what Jesus is. Totally human and totally divine. Look at Isaiah 9, 6 here with me. For to us, a child is born. He's a child, totally human. And to us, a son is given. He's the son of God, totally divine, hypostatic union, totally man, totally God. One scholar says it like this. The great mystery of the manger is that God should be able to translate deity into humanity without discarding the deity or distorting the humanity. Wow. And we see this hypostatic union thing all over scripture. Colossians chapter two, verse nine. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance, as a man. John chapter one, verse one and verse 14. In the beginning was the word. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word. And the word, Jesus, was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. He is majestic in who he is. There are over 250 names in the Bible for Jesus. And yet, these four names that we see in Isaiah 9-6 are entirely unique. We see these nowhere else in Scripture. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Kind of a bold name for a baby, huh? (laughs) Can you imagine getting that birth announcement in the mail, opening it up, a charming little picture of a baby boy surrounded by some farm animals, and on it, it says, born December the 10th, 2017, seven pounds, 13 ounces, 21 inches long, and his name? Not William or Jared or Caleb or Cody, but Mighty God. That's a bold name for a baby. But he is. He is the wonderful counselor. A good counselor is someone who's been through what you are going through. And Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he's been here and he's walked in our shoes. And we live in a therapeutic society full of recovery programs and counselors and therapists and support groups and a diagnosis for every kind of possible condition. And, I, and those things are good and they have their place and I'm very thankful for them. But there's only one wonderful counselor and only he can heal the deepest hurts. But actually, this word here for counselor doesn't really mean like therapist. It means something more like strategist. Literally, this could read, Jesus is a wonder of a strategist. You remember that the whole world was ruined by a terrible strategist, a terrible counselor in the garden, the serpent. But the whole world is saved through a wonderful counselor, a wonderful strategist, Jesus, who is most often called rabbi, which means teacher, and he is the very wisdom of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. Jesus is a wonder of a counselor. He always knows the best choice to make. Wow. He is the mighty God. He is El Gibor. Literally, he's the warrior God or the hero God. 
He will fight for us and he will win the battle that we lost. This is the promised child from Genesis chapter three who will make war with that serpent and with Satan. This is the promised child who went the distance with death itself on the cross and he emerged victorious from the grave having conquered sin and death. Hebrews chapter 10 has this amazing phrase. It calls him the founder, the pioneer, the captain of our salvation. And if this baby really is the mighty God of heaven, then you can't just like him. You can't just think that he was a nice guy. You can't just think that he was a pretty good teacher. You can't just think that he's the foundation for a nice, clean, tidy, moral life. If this baby, if you believe that he is really the mighty God of heaven, then you must worship him. Wow. He's the everlasting father. Some of you didn't have good fathers. When you hear the word father, it brings back old hurts, scars, wounds. Some of you have suffered abuse at the hands of your fathers. Some of your fathers were just absent. Maybe your dad never told you that he loved you. No matter how imperfect your earthly father was, Jesus is here to tell you that you have a heavenly father who is wild about you. And Emmanuel, he's always there. God with us. He's the everlasting, never leaving father. And now some of you may be thinking, well, wait, I thought Jesus was the son. Good question. We believe in what's called the Trinity. And that means that we believe in one God, totally and completely united. He's one God. We don't worship three gods. But there are three persons in the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are completely unified, of one essence and equal to each other. Jesus is not some kind of lesser God or demigod or second-class God. Jesus is equal to and of one essence with the Father. When we worship Jesus, we worship the Father. When we worship the Holy Spirit, we worship Jesus. They are all one God and yet three persons. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I and the Father are one. They are God united. And Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, he's always there. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Wow. And he's the Prince of Peace. We live, as Israel did, in a world of despair and darkness, a world that is largely not devoted to God. And yet into our confusion and chaos comes this Prince of Peace. We just read that Isaiah says he he turns the bloody garments of war into just fuel for the fire. Isaiah said earlier, he will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That's beautiful. No more drones or bombs, civilian casualties or child soldiers, 21 gun salutes or teary-eyed mothers. At last, as the angels sang to the shepherds on that Christmas night, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And the government is on his shoulders, Isaiah says. Nobody votes him in or out of office. He has no term limit. He has no successor. He has no lame duck inadequacies. He has no potential election insecurities. His reign is peaceful. His power is perpetual. And his kingdom's growth is progressive. And he will restore perfect peace as our prince at last. John Orberg writes about a world in which the prince of peace has his way. And he writes this. He says, all marriages would be healthy 
and all children would be safe. Israeli and Palestinian children would play together on the West Bank, and their parents would build homes for one another. In offices and boardrooms, executives would secretly scheme to help their colleagues succeed, and they would compliment them behind their backs. Tabloids would be filled with accounts of courage and moral beauty. Talk shows would feature mothers and daughters who love each other deeply, and men who secretly enjoy dressing as men. Disagreements would be settled with grace and civility. Oh, there would still be lawyers, perhaps, but they would have really useful jobs, like delivering pizza, which would be non-fat and low in cholesterol. (laughs) Doors would have no locks. Cars would have no alarms. Churches would never split. No father would ever say, I am too busy to a disappointed child. Divorce courts and battered women's shelters would be turned into community recreation centers, No one would be lonely or afraid. People of different races would join hands. And every time one human being touched another, it would be to express encouragement, affection, and delight. And that is what our Prince of Peace wants. And that is what he's working towards, starting with us. Wow. And yet we still live in the real world, don't we? And we see the brokenness in the world around us. And we see the brokenness in our own lives. And we know we're not there yet. And you might wonder where your peace is. In the year 1865, during the Civil War, the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was writing. He was going through a hard time in his life. His wife, Frances, had just died in a horrific accident. She was using a candle, and her clothes caught on fire, and she died. And his, his son had just been badly, badly wounded in a battle in the Civil War. It's no wonder that when Henry Wadsworth Longfellow sat down to write... He began the poem with these words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And you may feel that way right now. Where's the peace on earth for me, you're thinking. There's no peace. Does God even know? Does God God even care what I'm going through? And yet, Longfellow, in the midst of his pain, remembered the truth of God, and he found strength to write this last verse. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Wow. He's marvelous in how he came. He's majestic in who he is. And he's mighty in what he will do. It's amazing to me that on an election year, whoever's running for president can say without blushing that they will keep America safe or they'll fix the mess in the Middle East or they will end gun violence or heal racial tension or eliminate poverty. And believe me, I hope they try. But to promise that is basically to say, hey, vote for me. I'm the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Put the government on my shoulders and see what happens. But we know that there's only one who can bear the weight of those expectations and succeed. One preacher said, the shoulders that bear the government of the universe are the shoulders that bore the cross to Calvary. And the Son of God had every opportunity to bail 
to listen to the enemy, to take the easy way out, but he chose to trust his father rather than the enemy. And he succeeded where we failed. He's the true son. And when Jesus was baptized, God said from heaven, he said, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And from the beginning to the end, Jesus lived this life, the life we should have lived, the life that pleased the father. And because of his faithfulness, we, a people who've walked in the darkness of our sin and disobedience as rebellious children of God, we've seen a great light as Isaiah says in chapter nine. The true son has come. The apostle Paul writes about Jesus, the true son, in Galatians chapter four, verses four and five. He says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Jesus had this intimacy with God. He called God Abba, which means dada, or father. And now, we can experience that same intimacy with the Father because through Jesus, we've been adopted. Paul continues in verses six and seven. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Listen up, church, this is the truth about you. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. We are heirs. We get to inherit the eternal life that Jesus Christ won for us. You guys remember the story of the prodigal son, right? Luke chapter 15. The son basically says, I want my inheritance now. Drop dead, dad. And he skedaddles out of town. He goes off to a far country. He leaves his father in disgrace. He takes the inheritance and he parties it up. But before too long, the money runs out and so do his friends. So what does the son do? He goes home thinking that maybe, just maybe, his father would let him back as a household servant or a farmhand or something. And when the son was still a long way off, it says, the father saw him and ran to him. And then they met. The rebel child, disobedient, a disgrace to his family, and the father, the father who'd been dishonored and disregarded and degraded by his own son. And the father should have punched him in the face. The father should have sent him away and said, don't let the door hit you on the way out. But in a shocking turn of scandalous grace, the father welcomes his wayward son back home and he throws a party for him. And that was us, church. Disobedient children, rebels, deserving of the father's wrath. But in step Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, marvelous in how he came, majestic in who he is, and mighty in what he will do. And because of Jesus, the true son, we are welcomed home into the loving arms of our father. Wow. Will you pray with me? Father, we are amazed and delighted at your grace that you would send your son to take our place after we disobeyed and rebelled continually against you. We know that your way is the best way, Father, and we will follow you because, because we love you, because you loved us first and you sent your son. Jesus, we thank you for coming and for taking our place. You're the true son and we worship you. It's in your precious name that we pray, amen.